Welcome to Sagittarius Eye Magazine, Audio Edition. Issue 2, October 3303. Editorial, written by Souverine. Welcome to Sagittarius Eye. It's October 3303. In the birthplace of the Federation, the northern part of the America continent on Earth in the Sol system, the leaves are turning orange and red and falling from the trees. Depending on who you ask, humanity stands at the cusp of a glorious war or ignoble extinction. Since our last issue, some independent pilots have managed to kill some Thargoid ships. What does this mean? Do we now have what it takes to take the fight to them? Perhaps. Back when North America was settled, doubtless some of the indigenous tribes people managed to kill the odd white settler too before being utterly overwhelmed by their superior technology. Not all of us are convinced that our alien visitors mean us harm though. They are abducting spacefaring humans, it's true, but I am yet to meet a pilot traversing the Pleiades who has been fired upon unprovoked. But enough of the crisis. We have much to distract you this month. The truth about Yuri Grom, exclusive insights into the Alliance's conquest of one of the bastions of Federation rule and a cockpit chat with one of the galaxy's greatest explorers. So relax, it might never happen. Souverine, editor. Yuri Grom and the EG Pilots. Wannabe overlords or humanity's guardians? Written by Souverine. Since the summer of 3302, the name EG Pilot has become common parlance across all of civilized space. Amongst the English-speaking community, the group had been little known before that point. But with the dangerous games of Unheld last year, the Russians, as they became known, rocketed to stunning success in a tsunami victory over their competitors. Since that time, the group have become known for their intimidating efficiency and unmatched ability to mobilize vast numbers of pilots to further their ambitions. However, they remain one of the most mistrusted powers. According to their official propaganda, they aim to dominate the galaxy, a goal which, understandably, causes consternation among societies who have no wish to be dominated. To go through the speculation and her say, Sagittarius I spoke to one of the inner circle of this most controversial galactic group. Despite her press pass, your correspondent was obliged to go through the standard diplomatic channels to arrange the interview. The EG pilot's ambassadorial machinery is impressive, and for an introduction we had to tap our contacts in the upper echelons of the political landscape. An introduction arranged your correspondent was invited to fly to Uriale, the home system of the EG pilots. An emerald-like planet, EG Prime, is a beautiful homeworld of the group, and Yuri Grom himself is rumored to spend time there. Our interview, however, took place on the workman-like station which orbits it, EG Main HQ. Upon arrival, the eye was totally greeted and quickly ushered to a meeting room. We were to meet uh, Commander Altov. Altov is a little-known figure on the galactic stage and chooses not to court the limelight. However, ask around at any high-profile event and the politically connected will quickly nod recognition at his name. 
As one of the few fluent English-speaking officers of Yuri Grom's operation, he has become something of the public face of the power. The main spokesperson through whom the group do their business with the galaxy's other powers. Your correspondent expected, then, a growth assertive character. The man who entered the room shortly after we sat down certainly didn't disappoint at first glance. Commander Altov is tall, with a military bearing and a weather face. It was quickly apparent that this was no airbrush mouthpiece for propaganda. Altov is a military man who just happens to have become the group's main spokesperson, rather than the other way around. However, as our conversation progressed, your correspondent found this initial impression increasingly belied. Over the course of the next hour, a picture emerged of a group frustrated with some of the misconceptions the media propagated about them. A group with similar aims and values to many others, much more familiar and accepted. Thanks for speaking to the Sagittarius Eye, Altov. Is all your first name? <laughs> Not really, Altarf is my old operative name. You can call me Boris if you wish, but I prefer my operative name. Both fine by me, though. Altarf, what's your role with EG Pilots? I am an agent of EG Pilots Group, or EGP. But my premier role is as ambassador for Yuri Grom and EG Union. We call that the EGU. Is there a leader under Yuri Grom? Yuri Grom is our ultimate leader, but he relies on opinions of his officers. There is a Yuri Ali High Council in which every officer of EGP has a say. All opinions are equal, but of course, older officers and veterans' opinions value the most. There's also a prime counselor for Yuri Grom who conducts all day-to-day -day operations and planning, but Yuri Grom has final word in everything. And who is the current prime counselor? Right now, this role is technically vacant. The latest counselor, Commander Rediskin, asked for the relief very recently, and we're currently searching for a replacement. For now, Commander Rediskin is still operating in this role. Interesting. Are you going to throw your hat into the ring? Well, I certainly have my hat full as it is right now, and I can't say that there is a replacement for me. While the role of Prime Counselor is 100% voluntary, the candidate must be prepared to work hard daily. It's a huge responsibility. The Prime Counselor is basically Yuri Grom's right hand, so he controls everything that doesn't require Yuri Grom's personal attention. I'm sure there are more suitable candidates in our ranks, and less busy as well. A statesman-like answer. That makes sense. When was EG Pilots founded? It would be hard for me to name a particular date. We really don't have something you can call a birthday, at least it is not public. EGP was founded right after the establishment of federal government and the Uriali system. EGP was black ops back then. I will take responsibility and say that you can call the 9th of June 3301 our first day. On that day, EGP alongside Yuri Grom, the former 
Federal Admiral began a fight for independence of Uriali. On that day, the EGP was born, and we were no longer Federal Allegiance. We were agents of the people of Uriali and Yuri Grom. I see. Why did Yuri Grom defect from the Federation? It was the Federation who defected from Grom. While serving in Federal Navy as an Admiral, Yuri Grom witnessed many things. Things he didn't like. The insane corruption of Federal politicians, the unenviable existence of the Uriali people, and more. He left the Navy and thus his political career started. United Uriali first, UF, party was created. The party that should have changed everything. Yuri Grom is an outstanding man, a charismatic leader, a great diplomat, and the people of Uriali loved him as they do now, and his popularity grew exponentially. Soon, UEF was main political force in the system. They were winning elections one by one, and Uriali started to slip quickly from the hands of the Federation. But one day the main element of the Federation showed itself. Key members of UEF betrayed their leader for money or power or for reasons known only to them. They expelled Grom from the party as a separatist and gave him to a federal court. That is when people of Uriali rioted and that is when EGP turned against the Federation. That day, the war started. UEF members were later prosecuted by an independent Uriali court. And the feds lost their system. But as we know now, this was only the beginnings of their misfortunes. I see. How many pilots count themselves as members of the group now? Difficult question. And it's not about secrecy. Our slogan is freedom amongst the stars, which means that everyone can do anything they want as long as it benefits our nation. We may be built as a military organization, but our slogan is our rule. So people come and go and come back. If you want pure numbers, I assume I can tell you this. We have over 300 active pilots. This number moves in both directions. We have about 40 core pilots that work every day. Then we have a huge mobilization resources, reserve pilots, veterans, mercenaries, former pilots, and volunteers. Their numbers are in the several thousands. We use these resources when we really need them, like during the Rise to Power competition last year. This is our true strike force. I understand that relations with the Federation have been difficult since the secession. How are relations with the other galactic powers? We have good relationship with Sirius Gov and we are rather friendly with Singarupanav Atala. Of course you are aware of Ziara, the largest international alliance to date. As for the Feds and the pirates come Kumu crew, they are our enemies, with no exceptions. Could you tell our readers what Ziada is? If someone is unfamiliar with this alliance, which made a huge political impact on the galactic situation, Ziada is a military alliance of Yuri Grom and the Empire. Each letter stands for a power, 
Zemina Torval, Yuri Grom, Arisa Lavigne Duval, Tenten Patrias, and Aisling Duval. We have undertaken to protect our nations from enemies, which stands for the others. This alliance has been extremely productive since the very first day, and we are confident it will be more so with each passing day. Oh, and I forgot about Edmund Mahon. Despite a rather violent but short conflict in the past over the Lunji system, we have a neutral to warm relations with them. That's fascinating. What challenges have you faced now you are galactic power? There are many. It was overwhelming at first. We were all fighters and special agents, damn good ones. We controlled several systems, but it was nothing compared to controlling billions of people. We were in dire need for logistics planners, accountants and so on. We were preparing, but we were still caught off guard. It is in the past now, of course, right now. Yuri Grom's domain is a working, living mechanism, and we are improving each day. Yuri Grom prefers dictatorships. Dictatorship is a highly charged word on English-speaking worlds, and has connotations of oppression and tyranny. How does that support your purported vision of freedom among the stars? It is simple, if you know what you are talking about. Each government type is a dictatorship of a certain group. Feudalism is a dictatorship of feudals who rule over land where peasants work and protect them. Democracy is a dictatorship of a ruling class which funds the elections and the candidates. Family is a dictatorship of elders which you are bound to before you reach adulthood. We had long and hard discussions in the past over what government type we should be, and the discussions were going nowhere, while time was short, so we left everything as it is. The dictatorship. Dictatorship of the people of our nation. Yuri Grom is an outstanding figure and we choose him to be our leader. He is the most worthy and able of us all, but we are connected. We listen to him and he listens to us. As for the world, we think it expresses everything we want. And we have examples of great leaders from the past who were dictators, but I understand that word. Though the meaning is constant, can vary in perception for different cultures. I can widen this word with words like chieftain, senior elder, or judge. Yuri Grom doesn't dictate what we must do. Rather, he thinks what is best for us, asks us what we think, then states the final decision based on the will of his people. I see. Semantics is important to understand what Yuri Grom and the EG pilot are all about, clearly. Does Grom wish to overthrow all governments that are not dictatorships, then? Yuri Grom is not expansionist, as many think. There are certain criteria which are we consider beneficial, and if you share them, you and Yuri Grom will likely get along. If you govern by oppression, corruption, and lawlessness, you will face the consequences. Okay, in that case, why is one of Yuri Grom's stated aims to dominate the galaxy? The dominance of law, you could say. The dominance of ideas which we consider positive and crucial for mankind. 
the dominance of brute force if you do not respect these ideals. This is what Kumo are facing now. They exist now only because of how insignificant and puny Archon Delaney is. His disappearance is just a matter of time. I see. I suppose the Empire is a dictatorship too. Indeed, we have many similarities with the Empire, which is why we chose them as our allies. We haven't regretted our decision so far, and it has been some time since Yara was formed. Yes, it seems that there are many shared values. So, what are Yuri Grom's plans for the rest of 3303? We plan to grow even more, to improve our economy. This is what I can announce in public, of course. We will continue to hunt pirates, especially the Como crew, as well as those who support them, meaning the Federation. Most of our plans are classified. I'm sorry. What are Yuri Grom's views on the Thogoi threat? We are very serious about this threat from the past. Our explorers were among many others who tried to find them, to find something to give humanity a better understanding of them. Apart from preparing our combat pilots for the possible war, Yuri Grom has something very big in mind. Can't speak of it right now, but if we're lucky, you'll see what I mean. Anyway, our pilots will be on the front lines of our homeland when the Thargoids come, you can count on that. Intriguing. Will DG pilots ally with the Federation against the Thogoids? This is a hard one. While we had the Federation as it is and everything it represents, we were all citizens of the Federation. We still have friends and family there, and overall they are our people. We were united once. We will see the Federation undone, but not at the cost of its people. This is the same reasons we do not wage an all-out war on the Federation. We do not want to throw the people of the Federation into the wildfire of war, even with the most noble intentions in mind. So the answer to your question is yes. If the Federation is so pathetic that it can't defend its citizens, we will be there. If the Thargoids are too much of a threat for the galaxy as a whole, we will unite humanity. Because this is what Yuri Grom and the EGU is about. But this doesn't mean we forget all the sins of the Federation. In the end, this is for Yuri Grom to decide. I see. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Is there anything else you'd like to say to our readers? Thank you. I'm really glad we were able to speak. I hope your article will help people of different cultures to know and understand us better. We were thinking about the creation of a foreign wing of EGU and we are still waiting for brave pilots from other nations to join. We have some already, but there should be more. All who share our ideals and vision, welcome. Come fight for the freedom among the stars and for Yuri Grom. An Uncertain War, written by Wilfred Sephiroth. Are we at war? The repeated encounters I have had over the last two weeks with those inscrutable entities we refer to as Thargoids did not offer any clue to answering this question. The fatal question that looms over every human denizen of the Milky Way. To some, 
possibly the very same trigger-happy members of the Pilots' Federation who have been taking upon themselves the task of blowing to pieces the alien invaders. The answer is obvious. Yes, we are at war. But it seems to me that the minimal normal requirements necessary to declare a state of war are lacking, and that we are not even close to meeting them. The reason is simple. We don't know anything about these entities. We don't understand their technology, their motives, their form of social organisation, if any. And most crucially, we are not in a position to know if they share any human concepts at all, including the concept of war. Indeed, even though we heard rumours about Orisians and Klaxians, we don't know if these names are accurate. Thargoids is as arbitrary a designation as any other label we assign to that which eludes our cognitive grasp to achieve the illusion of control. Without a more nuanced means for communicating with them than a battery of missiles, we will never shed any light on these unknowns. For what we know, the entities, spacecrafts we've met so far, could be mere sentient machines possessing no kind of sapience which would put them in the position of representing a warring opponent. Were our distant ancestors at war with mammoths and saber-toothed tigers? And yet, this analogy fails spectacularly to convey the genuinely alien character of the Thargoids. Prehistoric mammals were our close cousins compared to these inexplicable entities. I have been hyperdicted twice by them, and an eerie dance ensued, my aspects trying to elude the two flower-shaped crafts, maintaining a constant distance from my ship with seemingly supernatural ease while mutely staring at me. That was as unsettling an experience as I've ever had in my many decades of spacefaring. No human being can ever experience a deeper feeling of powerlessness and loneliness as I did, when floating in the darkness of space being silently examined by faceless and indecipherable forms of life. Perhaps against my better judgement, I have also jumped into several of those non-human signal sources, as my onboard computer has labelled them, commonly found in the Pleiades cluster. But even there, I have never been attacked without provocation. Yes, my attempts at communicating occasionally took me to approach them too much. The Thargoid equivalent of too close for comfort, I suppose. And I have been fired upon. But that's a flimsy basis to declare their uncompromising hostility. Has anyone actually witnessed them spontaneously opening fire on human vessels? Of course, this opens a far more sinister question. If they didn't destroy those ships, who did? Rumours about two separate factions or groups of Thargoids abound. What if we are still to meet the bad guys? Someone will surely retort, but they can be seen abducting people, and that's undeniable. But what do we know about the fate of those who are taken? Are they being rescued or experimented upon? Reversing my argument, one could also hypothesise that we are nothing but animals for them. Would you apologise to an ant colony if you were to pick up a few of its members to study them? I am not trying to convince you that the Thargoids are flower-shaped angels coming to elevate us from our barbaric state of constant high-tech warfare. I am simply arguing that there's very little that we know for sure, and that this ignorance could one day prove fatal to us all. For as long as there will be no communication with these entities, we will never ascertain whether or not the conceptual schemes of our two species are so utterly incommensurable to make it impossible to share basic ideas such as war or peace. And we will never find out if they are the aliens we should be worried about. For now, we've been trading with them on only one concept, Perhaps the galaxy's most basic one. Death. As alien as they might be, I doubt that systematic extermination will represent a good precedent for a future cordial exchange of knowledge. Besides, 
We have already started to see how they are adapting to our newly produced weapons. So much for Aegis being a peaceful research institution. We have no idea of what, or who, might be coming next. Maybe, just maybe, the smoke and debris of our temporary victories are occluding from view a far more lethal threat. Flying with Commander Alitnil. An interview. Written by Aura Laurel. I met Commander Alitnil at his ship, using the telepresence suite, as he was thousands of light years away from me. Welcome, he said. I'd offer you a drink, but they haven't invented a way to drink while in telepresence yet. A grin broke the settled frown as he said these words, but it quickly disappeared. He was sitting across from me on the table, his tinted glasses in front of him, his hands never still. He followed my gaze to his glasses, and another smile appeared immediately. Too many neutron star jets, he said. His restlessness subsided a little when he started talking about his travels. His voice was soft but deep and passionate. The love for exploration filled his words, and his hazel eyes sparkled throughout the conversation. A traveller, an inquisitive spirit, a loner. This is the story of Commander Alitnil. Thank you for agreeing to talk to Sajai Alitnil. Your name is well known in the exploration community and beyond. Why? My pleasure, and congratulations on the successful launch of the Sagittarius Eye. Why? Well, I guess it's because the area of exploration I most enjoy is finding ways to get to difficult-to-reach places. Since the position of every system in the Milky Way is already known, we only need to determine a route to somewhere if it is beyond the route plotter's ability. That means heading into those really sparse areas where you need to jump on fumes or use boosts to make progress. There are reports that your name as a first discoverer is everywhere on the Galactic Rim. How long have you been pushing the boundaries? How far have you reached? I set off on my first long trip in early 3301. I had originally only intended to go to Sag Astar, but, inspired by the adventures of Commander Aramis, I ended up taking my little Cobra Mark III all the way to the far side of the galaxy, becoming one of the first commanders to get to 65,000 light years from Sol. The profits from that trip enabled me to buy an anaconda, and I then used that to see just how far I could go in each of the coordinate axis directions. After that, as jump ranges increased, it became a passion to try and get as far from the bubble and the galactic core as possible. I hold the records for the furthest south, east and west of the core, and also the one for above the galactic plane. That's extraordinary. Do you ever explore outside of sparse areas? Do you ever feel the draw to visit nebulas or other sites that can be reached through normal plotting? I have performed a few scientific surveys of sectors not far from the core, concentrating on the most massive systems and Earth-likes. I have been to a lot of nebulae in the past, but they can sometimes feel a bit too much like tourist spots these days. That said, if I find myself traveling near one, then I may well pop over to enjoy the views, as they are always spectacular. Have you discovered any planetary nebulae closer to the galactic rim? Are they rare? Only one so far. Flye Proye IN-SE4-1. But that's a couple of thousand light years from the actual edge. Uh, there's also Spongu FA-AE2, which is on the far side of the Formidine Rift, and closer to the rim than my find, but I don't know of any others, so they are likely very rare. 
How does it make you feel to be somewhere very few, if any, pilots have ever been? There's a sense of achievement, obviously, but I really enjoy the idea of being completely alone. I've always been a loner, and knowing there might not be another human for thousands of light years is something I'm very comfortable with. Few people are able to be entirely by themselves for extended periods and still be comfortable. Still, telepresence is a unique feature our ships carry. Do you ever get visitors while you explore? Do you go and visit anyone? Do you meet with friends out in the black? I keep up with goings-on via the various galactic messaging systems, but when exploring, I prefer to be by myself and not have to worry about fitting in with other pilots' schedules. I have met up with others on occasion and was a member of the Distant Worlds expedition, so lots of meetups as part of that, but I have not done so for a long time. We still don't know much about you. Who is a Litnil? Tell us a few things about yourself and your personal history. I come from the Newman Ring Station, in a totally unremarkable Hun Hayus system. My parents were cobalt refiners, but that never appealed to me, and I had dreams of joining the Federation Navy. I did take some steps along that career, but soon became disillusioned with the whole political structure of the galaxy. I bought my way out of the Navy and set up as an independent pilot. I drifted about the bubble, earning cash here and there, until one day I decided to take a little trip beyond the borders. I only went about 500 light years, but it was both scary and exciting, and I fell in love with exploration. And that's when the explorer Alitnil was born. You mentioned Commander Eremus earlier. Have you been influenced or inspired by other explorers? And if yes, who? Commander Jackie Silver for exemplary scientific work. Commander Alot has also done a lot in that area too, but mainly because his record runs got me interested in the Buckyball SAG A-Star race. There aren't really many others who have directly influenced me, as I do try to live by the blaze-your-own-trail-across-the-galaxy maxim. But over the years, I have learned so much from so many commanders, and the whole community is an inspiration. You mentioned the galactic limits you hold the record for. Are there any other notable moments and achievements you're proud of? I hold the record for the Buckyball SAG A-Star run at just over two hours. I once tagged every single body in a sector, NGC 6326 sector. It's a very small one. But, perhaps a little perversely given my previous answer, the event that I think of most is the first ever recorded meetup at more than 65,000 light years from Sol, with Commanders Barefoot Bandit and Stilly in June 3301. What's the total distance you've travelled so far, and how many systems have you visited? Tell us of the most remarkable or strangest system you've visited. 5.7 million light years. That's more than enough to get to Andromeda and back. And 137,000 systems. I think the most remarkable system I've found is ODGAF DL-YG0, a black hole on the very edge of the galaxy. Prior to its discovery, it wasn't thought that there were any remotely close to the edge. The black hole lensing gives a unique view of the galaxy. That is remarkable indeed, and the image is absolutely amazing. Were there any moments out in the blacks that you'd call the worst? Any situations that challenged you or endangered you? There were a couple of times when I went to sleep without making sure the key systems were shut down and slowly flew into stars. I must have been exhausted as the heat alarms didn't wake me. First time left me with just 1% hull, but I was able to limp home 15,000 light years without further incident. 
The second one didn't cause much hull damage, but it knocked out a whole bunch of modules, and, much worse, corrupted all the data I had collected on that trip. It took several days of hard effort with the help of some boffins at UC to recover it all. Exhaustion can be deadly in cases like these. I'm glad you managed to recover and return safely. Are your exploration trips long, or do you tend to keep them short and frequent? How often do you go back to the bubble? How long do you stay, usually? I'm typically out for about six to eight weeks before heading back to the bubble or colonia. But I can typically cover about a thousand systems a week, so the trips are quite long in that respect. Usually, I'm heading back out within a couple of weeks. Colonia is currently hailed as the new human outpost. What are your thoughts about the new colony? Would you consider making it your permanent home? Along with many explorers, I had hoped that it might turn out to be something different without the factions and politics that are characteristic of the bubble. Sadly, for me, it is increasingly looking like bubble light. I do like catching up with Jacques when I'm there, but don't really have any more time for the rest of the place than I do for the bubble itself. I've got a few candidate, uninhabited Earth-likes for when I finally decide to settle down. Speaking of the bubble, what are your thoughts about the situation in the Pleiades and the Thargoid threat? Do you think the human-inhabited bubble is in danger of a Thargoid invasion? I had hoped that we could establish peaceful relations with them, but that's looking increasingly unlikely from what I've been hearing. Could have happened and been to all our benefits if commanders weren't so hell-bent on shooting anything that moves rather than talk. As it is, it does look like war, and their technology looks superior to ours. If and when they take the initiative, I can see much of the bubble being laid waste. Ominous, but ultimately realistic. Attempting peaceful communication would definitely have been the sensible decision. Do you think that perhaps explorers will enjoy relative safety and not attract the attention of the Thargoids? I hope so. They don't seem all that aggressive for now, and are happy to just observe unless pushed too far. But if that changes, maybe we explorers can trade data on ammonia worlds for our lives. Indeed. Or perhaps help find a new home for humanity away from the Thargoid menace. What does the future hold for you? What are your hopes and dreams? I expect to keep on exploring, but maybe scale down things a little. The galaxy is starting to feel a little small, so I hope we get the technology one day to head out to the globular clusters, the Magellanic clouds, and maybe even other galaxies. As for where I will be, I'll probably somewhere way beyond the first star on the right. Thank you again for agreeing to talk to us, Elitnil. It's been an honor and an absolute pleasure. Thanks, been great talking to you. Even a loner likes a conversation every now and then. Eye on the Sky. The Aegis Deception. Humanity's Real Invaders. Written by Rasudin. In the face of the ongoing Thargoid transgressions against humanity, commanders have, until recently, been helpless. Our systems were vulnerable to their electromagnetic pulses, our scanners unable to process the strange readings from their vessels, and our weapons totally ineffective. The Thargoids are a terrifying threat. They are utterly alien, inscrutable, immovable, unstoppable. Is it any wonder, then, that the galaxy welcomed the news of an interpower coalition to resist them? Still, many times in history, nefarious men and women have used an illusion of altruism to seize power. Let's discuss the Aegis Initiative, shall we? Announced in early August as a response to cries for interpower unity in the face of the Thargoid threat, 
The Aegis Initiative is a coalition of the greatest minds from the Federation, Empire, and Alliance, said Professor Alba Tessero of the Akadar Research Council. It is imperative that we coordinate our efforts. While there may be antagonism between our governments, there is strong desire for collaboration and cooperation within the scientific community. Indeed, there is strong antagonism between the Tessero's Empire and the Federation. Only a few short weeks ago, the two superpowers came to blows in the Hosi system, with the Federation-backed Hosi Jetcoms Limited and Empire-backed Freedom Party of Hosi erupting into conflict without warning. None can doubt the fierce hostility that currently exists between the galaxy's superpowers, particularly the commanders who support any of those factions. What does it mean, then, that these warring superpowers should be able to easily set aside their differences to fight our new enemies, the Thargoids? The answer is to be found in Aegis's clever new logo. Observe the simple but elegant shape of the three birds of prey, here representing the three superpowers, coming together. It's a pretty piece of artwork. But if you look deeper, you see that in coming together, the birds reveal something else. Look at the shape made by the bird's contrast. Do you see the flower already present at the center, binding the birds together? This logo is an illustration of a hidden reality. There is a hidden power behind this initiative, exploiting the Thargoid threat to combine all of humanity's resources for their own mysterious ends. We must not allow them to hide from us. We must uncover the truth. There are naysayers who say that in the face of such a terrifying threat as the Thargoids, of course humanity would come together on its own. But this is naive and blind to the truth. There is a uniting force behind this Aegis initiative, and though it fulfills one purpose in offering us the tools to resist our alien invaders, there is another purpose it also fulfills. On April 29, 3303, Commanders of all philosophies and walks of life united behind the banner of Lady Kahina Loren, also known as Salome. She told the galaxy that she had uncovered a secret about the galaxy's superpowers, and asked for the help of independent commanders in revealing it to all of humanity. Though Loren was killed by the now despised Smiling Dog crew, her compatriots Ran Korsan, Tsu Annabel Singh, and Yuki Nakamura survived and discovered a series of listening posts in the Torge system. As Singh and her escorts reached the listening posts ahead of the rest, the message Loren would die to reveal was broadcast. That a mysterious organization, in existence for centuries, has been manipulating the galaxy's superpowers behind the scenes. The contents of the message are too extensive to fully discuss here, but Senator Drew Wagar has written up an account of the whole sequence of events elsewhere. Thanks to the efforts of Loren and her compatriots, we now know that the galaxy's superpowers are not the all-powerful rulers of civilization we believe them to be. They are a mask, an illusion, a system propped into place by our true rulers. The Federation and the rest are all powerless to resist the desires of this group, this oligarchy. Here now we have an answer to our earlier question. How did the Aegis Initiative come to be if the Federation, Empire and Alliance are so dramatically opposed? The answer is that these superpowers are not really in control. It has been publicly stated that Aegis received its substantial funding from all three superpowers. But who is behind the superpowers' directions? 
Could it be the mysterious organization Loren died to reveal? Could it be some other superpower, like them? See my previous column. There is plenty of evidence for either of these hypotheses, if you know where to look. It is essential for all of us to see past the illusory system that surrounds us. The Aegis Initiative is a lie, a mask, serving a purpose not made clear to us. What is that purpose? Time may tell, but only if every commander dedicates themselves to constant vigilance and truth-seeking. The true rulers of our society have not remained hidden for so long without considerable resources and expertise. We must ask some essential questions. Who really oversees the Aegis Initiative? Who directs its research? A good place to begin would be with Admiral Aidan Tanner, Aegis's military liaison from the Federal Navy. Said Admiral Tanner to Galnet News on October 6th. The question is, what is the Thargoid's objective? All available resources will be directed to answering this question. How do we know that the Admiral isn't lying to the galactic community? Certainly the Feds have lied to us all before. Consider how, until very recently, stories of Thargoids were suppressed into rumor only, despite our now evident history with them. As the Thargoids rapidly adapt to our technology, the so-called efforts of Aegis become more and more suspect. What are they really trying to accomplish? Do they really know as little about the Thargoids' motives as they claim? I believe myself to be safe at the moment, concealed beneath the surface of an airless moon in the Pleiades. But my line of work is dangerous. There are many who want me dead, or worse. So I must conclude my writing here. I will continue my work as much as I am able. Fly safe, commanders, if you can, and keep an eye on the sky. Musings from Maya. Written by Blackmail Gnome. It is with the confirmation that our greatest galactic competitors have returned who finds me sitting at a table overlooking the docking area of Obsidian Orbital. Bro, an elaborate dance is acted out between crafts of all shapes and sizes, from heavily laden gunships to decrepit explorers as the constant drone of tower control can be heard through even these thick walls. It is a sight expected well within the comforts of the bubble. Yeah, hundreds of light years away from the birthplace of humanity, a new urgency is felt in this artificial atmosphere. In my youth, I would spend a lot of my time reading books and stories from the previous millennia, stories about fabled dragons and small folk derived from ancient beliefs that once occupied villages around the hearth fires. Amongst those stories was a fantasy series that both ridiculed and added to the then-contemporary genre, a worthy feat even by today's standards. Contained within one such story was the insult, May you live in interesting times, which was misunderstood by the main protagonists, often to comic effect, yet I am now drawn to that very insult in a way that stretches my credibility as a writer. In a society where the status quo rules supreme, anything remotely interesting is frowned upon or even outright fought against. And oh, how we embrace the status quo of our little bubble. It might be surprising that the term status quo can be used to describe the bubble. 
After all, control for inhabited systems is in a constant state of flux. Powers fight against each other for the very resources contained, while lifestyles clash resulting in many different definitions of what is counted as lawful. Yet we have been doing this for millennia, since our great ancestors waved pointed sticks at one another. It's only the means that have changed. Another literary work springs to mind in our current climate, the classic War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, a science fiction masterpiece written at the end of the 19th century during the height of the British Empire. It dealt with the fall of one empire to another, in this case, the Martians. The story is well known, and it has been regurgitated thousands of times, yet there is something enduring about the fall of the invading empire at the hands of natural biological elements, as if it is the earth repelling the invaders rather than humanity. Our previous encounters with the Thargoids very much followed the biological elements, although there was nothing natural about the virus created. Much has been written and debated about the conduct during that time and no doubt more will be written as a counterbalance to our current predicament. This, in turn, brings me back to the novel. Early on, after the first cylinder falls upon Horsell Common, the military reassures the public that it has everything under control and life should continue as usual. Very similar to our collective trust of authority in the bubble. We might fight against the Federation, or vow to bring down the Emperor, but when someone with a badge says, nothing to see here, collectively we agree and get on with our minor acts of rebellion. There is nothing new to this. After all, we've been under the control of the few for our entire evolution as a race. When the general populace continues with life, it is with no surprise that commanders from the Pilots' Federation have ventured towards the Pleiades Nebula. Perhaps they are cut from a different cloth. But these commanders do not fall into the general populace category. We find one another drawn towards the uncertain, and yes, I include myself in this number. Not all commanders share the same ideals. After all, we have different alignments, to use an old pen-and-paper roleplay term. Some are aggressive wanting to destroy the unknown, others wish to study, and some even want to form relations with our old foe. Some even believe that we should prepare for an exodus to Colonia, as all human life is at threat within our bubble. It is a sentiment encountered in hushed tones throughout, as if some unwritten rule negates the possibility, and those who prepare for it are viewed as the doomsayers of old. Yet, as I sit recording this, I have witnessed a multitude of battle-damaged ships dock, often barely in time before their systems fail. Military and mercenary, explorers and traitors. The designation of the craft means little to those invaders out there. The way the Martians in the War of the Worlds treated all of humanity is one. It has even been reported that they harvest the escape pods of our ships. A case of fact, aping fiction, perhaps. A planned exodus and transferal of power to the colonial bubble has merit, yet we are attached to our place in the universe. After all, it has been our home for a very long time. A rumour around these parts hints at the military withdrawal of both the Empire and Federation. 
and recent Galnet articles seem to confirm this. Yet this has done little to diminish the activity levels in the nebula. Individuals and collectives are waiting for the opportunity to fill the potential void of retreating superpowers. Struggles between factions will play out like our galactic competitors are figments of imagination, rather than potential threats. The threat perceived depends upon who you ask, but many agree with the view that expansion from the nebula is a distinct possibility. Some will argue that these times are indeed interesting. A sentiment that I can wholeheartedly agree with. Thank you for listening to this edition of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This edition featured articles written by Souverain, Wilfred Sephiroth, Aura Laurel, Rasudin and Blackmail Gnome, and was also contributed to by executive editor Whitman and designer Cheat in 1987. This audio edition featured the voices of Commander Burr, Mayor Fay, Rosetta Stone, Daryl Narr, Edla Weiss, Souverine and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Adurnus, Edla Weiss and Souverine. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to bring you the news written by Commanders for Commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It's not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius I.